All right, welcome everybody to episode 17, Naked Stem Cells. I am Dr. Christopher Pisano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Yosef, my man, what's up? How's it going? I, I really like that title there. That's uh, pretty provocative. Know, right? Yeah, I'm excited for our guest here. He's sort of like the granddaddy of, the grand pooba of uh, pi- science podcasting, at least. So um, Yeah, so that's Dr. Chris Smith. He is uh, the founder, creator of The Naked Scientist, which is an amazing, amazing now portfolio of science, just stuff, podcasts and uh, you can go on their websites and get all this information. Uh, I think, Yosef, something like 17 million downloads, I think, they have for their podcast. Something crazy like that. Yeah, they're sort of, we're, 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 we're just getting started, and we'd yeah, love to see not, those not sort of numbers. But. <laughs> but it's, I mean, what they're doing for science in general, is they're, so they're very broad, for, you, for everyone who's not familiar, they're a very broad uh, science educational program. So they touch on all different types of science. Um, we talk about stem cells. Um, we're going to talk about stem cells. And we're curious to see his knowledge of stem cells. I bet he'll be pretty spot on because these guys are pretty pretty knowledgeable about most things science. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, we, we try to bring mostly stem cell scientists uh, to the podcast, but uh, every once in a while we throw you a curveball. And uh, this one's not interviewing a stem cell scientist, but we will discuss that with him and uh, hopefully get some insights into uh, scientific outreach and podcasting and everything else that comes with uh, somebody like uh, Chris Smith. He's he's also so MD PhD, right? He's mud fun. MDP. Although you know what he's, you know what he was telling me before when we were booking the interview, he said it was the equivalent of our MD PhD, but okay. it's called an MD PhD. So I don't really understand. Like <laughs> yeah. maybe maybe there's some different process or something, but yeah, yeah it's an MD PhD. Okay, so do you have any announcements before we get Let's started? Let's see here. Um, Yes. So Yosef and I were just talking about this, actually. The Saratoga meeting is, is coming up. Um, this, this episode will air very, you know, in the next couple of days. So I think we'll be about a couple of weeks away to the uh, next-gen stem cell conference. Uh, we got a pretty good turnout. Uh, still time to register. So you can go uh, to uh, nextgenstemcell.com, register, uh, and come, come hang out with us. It'll be a great meeting. We were just saying it's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to that. Okay, anything else? Uh, let's see here. Uh, you know where we are, at Stem Cell Podcast, stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, get us there. And I, I just want to tell everybody that uh, our next and the next episode, um, we're going to have Dr. Kevin Egan on from the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. He's a professor there. He's a good friend. Uh, and he's going to walk us through uh, the story of uh, um, you know IPS stem cell technology in the context of neurodegenerative disease from you know really where it starts uh, and how close we are. Um, you know, to to getting to some sort of therapy, and he does ALS. There was a lot of papers in the in the news in the last couple of weeks, so that'll be an awesome that'll be an awesome guest and a good episode, yes. Yeah, and hopefully uh, we won't get into the sports realm, being that he's a big Boston fan, and they're having their marathon today. And that's uh, true, Patriots yeah. Day, right? Yes, yes. So, uh, sort of like a considering what happened last year, this is a big day uh, for the Bostonians. Big day. Uh, so I'm it's looking forward to. That. I was listening to that. Yeah. So he'll be a great. He'll be a, a great guest. So let's, I think that's what I got here. Yep, that's it, Yo. So do you want to just uh, kick it off? Yeah, let's start off the science roundoff with something that I saw uh, just this morning in Nature Photonics. I didn't even know there was a Nature Photonics. There's a photo- Nature Photonics? <laughs> yes. How many, let me ask you a question. How many subscribers do you think there are to Nature <laughs> Photonics? I have no idea, but... Um, <laughs> 
they uh they they apparently scientists have been able to make uh solar panels out of glass uh using quantum dots so uh yeah how amazing would that be uh to have uh clear glass solar energy you know you energy made from solar power using uh quantum dots in these glass slabs so I thought that was pretty cool. Dude, that's crazy, man. Yeah. We're going to qu- live in like bubbles pretty soon. <laughs> Quantum dots are pretty cool. Quantum um, dots are cool. Yeah. I don't know, really, but they're cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think anybody quite really understands them. It's sort of like they're caged in like in these cheerleaders sort of things. <laughs> um, so uh, moving on, uh, there was a nature communication study uh, with actually two people in my lab were on it, Julius Steinbeck and the uh, Lorenz Studer. It was uh, showing that uh, catecholaminergic oh, neurons, which dopamine neurons are part of, uh, are susceptible to T-cell-mediated degeneration in um, the, uh, the expression of MHC class 1 antigens. Um, so this may be, uh, sort of cluing in on may- perhaps maybe dopamine neurons are susceptible to autoimmune, uh, mechanisms, uh, degeneration via the expression of MHC. Uh, MHC is major histocompatibility complex. Uh, right. It's like, and it's like the body's address, right? Yeah. And it, it sort of alerts the immune system to foreign invaders, uh, these, these MHC, uh, uh, proteins are released are shown on the surface of the cell and it marks the cell for destruction in certain cases so um or protects them but um yeah so uh you can find that in nature communications this month um a couple of uh science papers um in uh the extra galactic region, uh, showing that, uh, uh, Earth's cousin was found. And, uh, Kepler had also, d- uh, discovered a white dwarf magnifying another sun nearby, confirming a prediction made decades ago called, uh, self lensing effect. You should see the video on, uh, science's website. It's pretty cool. Um, showing, yeah, they imaged a white dwarf and it's sort of like, it, it looks like you're putting a magnifying glass around, uh, it's, it, it creates this distortion that you could actually see, uh, from, uh, the Kepler. So, uh, both of those are, uh, if you just, you know, Google Earth's cousin or, uh, this self-lensing effect, you'll find both of those papers. So, um, you can find that in science. Uh, there was also a current biology paper describing four species of Brazilian cave insects with sex reverse genitalia. The females possess an, a penis like organ and the males a vagina like organ. I don't know if you saw that, uh, no. uh, in the news. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. It's, uh, you could find did, that. Well, why did, like, did they talk about it's just one, it? just one of these oddities in nature. You're just like, what the heck is going? So, so it's not, it's not like a mutation. This is just how they are. Yeah, yeah. It's not a mutation at huh. all. So, um, yeah. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah. Um, moving on, uh, scientists also discovered the Juno protein. Uh, discovered for, uh, it was sort of like this prediction uh, that was evasive. Uh, discovered for the uh, sperm fusing to the egg. Um, I don't know if you saw that paper, 
But um, no, I didn't see that paper. No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, moving on, I'm just gonna blast through these real quick. Uh, there was a blast new, it. yeah, new child disorder uh, that was described. I didn't realize this. It's in the new DSM. Uh, it's uh, it's called slow cognitive tempo, and it's sort of creating. It's like the opposite of ADHD. It's sort of this dreaminess, like daydreaminess, and um, it's sort of like a controversial. Uh, new classification and they're you know it's now in the dsm it's called slow cognitive tempo i see like i see like what, what's going on here <laughs> I, I mean like come on uh, here's uh, how does how does how do you get something into the dsm i mean is there like a consensus agreement can you just start just start randomly making up things because like every kid daydreams or stares off no yeah and it seems like these kids are actually more creative and uh you know should you encourage this or try and treat it? Yeah, I you, you wouldn't want that, man. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't want creative kids. Yeah. So I don't know. I'll I have was, to read more about that. That's yeah. interesting. Where Where was this? Did uh, you find this? The, I, there? Uh, I actually had the journal. It's the journal of something cognition. I forget. Psycho- it's fine. It'll, yeah. we'll, put, we'll put the link up and we can yeah, check yeah. it out. Yeah. Um, cool. There was a big January issue just dedicated to this. And uh, the drug, you know, the DSM is big time in terms of like the codes that insurance companies use in America to reimburse all sorts of stuff. So DSM uh, has a a profound effect on medicine in America. Um, I don't know if you saw this. There was also an announcement from Mark Turner from the Wellcome Trust uh, that he's going to infuse IPS-derived type O blood uh, stem cell, uh, blood derived from IPS cells. Yeah, and uh, they hope to put this in patients, uh, do clinical trials in 2016. I saw that. Yeah. So so, it's awesome, right? Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. It seems like the blood field is, you know, type O blood is the universal donor. So if we could have IPS derived type O blood, uh, that'd be a great resource for every the world. I mean, see, see, uh, Daylon, you're out there, man. If you're listening, the blood's making a making a wave, man. Making yeah, a wave. I didn't realize this, but there are 30 million uh, blood transfusions done every year. That's that's that number just yeah, seems... and, and 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 yeah, bone marrow, all that stuff. It's all blood. Like you know, our most our stem cells, our most successful thing yeah. is in that blood world. Um, but like, I feel like the blood gets hated on. Maybe just because I'm a neural guy, like I know what I know, kind of yeah, thing. I don't know. Yeah, you know what you know. <laughs> but you got to pay homage. Making making blood from stem cells is is an awesome awesome feat. Yeah. Sure. So uh, uh, you can look that up. Um, up from the Welcome Trust and Mark Turner. Uh, moving on, uh, I don't know if you saw this in uh, Nature. The Allen Brain Atlas uh, published their fetal brain map. Uh, yeah, I did. Describing, I saw that. Yeah, 300 different brain regions. I've been using this database for a while. I love... If I met Paul Allen, I'd give him a big hug and maybe a kiss on the cheek as like a neuroscientist. That, would he donate like $100 million or... Three hundred million. Oh, yeah. well, I just you just read up another hundred, but it was like three hundred million, I believe. Yeah, so that that database is such a valuable resource, and so they did those laser micro dissections, and then yep, yep. Uh, from different brain regions of donated fetal tissue. I think it's fifteen to twenty one post 
uh, coital weeks. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's a valuable database in terms of development and finding which genes are expressed in different brain regions during development in the human. So uh, you can find Definitely. that. Definitely. That was an all. Yep. Awesome. Uh, there was a J-Neuro study that got a lot of press uh, analyzing 20 pot smokers from the ages of 18 to 25 and showing uh, they were sort of like moderate to heavy smokers and showed that uh, via brain scans, they saw changes in uh, areas associated with emotion and motivation uh, in the amygdala and the nucleus accumbens, uh, respectively, and uh, higher densities of um their scans to non-users. So it wasn't really sure if this is a cause or effect and uh, didn't seem to affect their performance, but it was one of the first papers to show this uh, change. I mean, similar changes have been found in uh, nicotine and alcoholics as well. But right, um, right. yeah, that this paper got a lot of press uh, for a J. Nero paper. I don't know if you saw that out there. I haven't seen it, but I would like to read that. There's a, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of you know, push now with the whole legalization wave. Yeah. I think a lot of they're trying to really come out with some stuff to say maybe that it's still bad or it's good because it's not really known. I think the consensus is that it's not that bad. But like you said, there's no real direct evidence. So I guess this would be some sort of direct evidence, yeah. right? Yeah, but, yeah. And it's not sure, like, uh, if it, this is, you know, it's sort of hard to control for these. Like, It's terms, very hard to control. Yeah, because you would have to, to scan control. these kids before they started using the drug versus after. Um, to see if these changes were there beforehand, uh, you know, yep. if, it, if, yep. if maybe that, uh, they self-selected that popular or that population, you know, those changes led to the, uh, the smoking. Anyhow, uh, there was also an annals of neurology study showing that women with APOE4 variant were twice mm-hmm. as more likely than men to get Alzheimer's, which I thought was interesting because, you know, the Alzheimer's rates are uh, higher in women. And um, it was always thought just because they live longer. But this study showed that uh, a genetic cause for that. So uh, that's you can find that in the annals wow. of neurology. Uh, I wish I had a PNAS study for us today, but uh, yeah, no PNAS. <laughs> yeah, not none today. Uh, <laughs> there was a Nature Neuro study showing uh, traces of trauma in the sperm RNA. I don't know if you saw this. It was um, a study used unpredictable maternal separation combined with unpredictable maternal stress or MSUS to traumatize mouse pups, and they found that when the, these pups uh, became adults, the uh, the traumatized mice uh, were less uh, hesitant to enter wide open spaces and had altered glucose metabolism. So uh, the offspring of the adults also displayed uh, this altered uh, glucose metabolism. So it sort of like left an imprint on uh, the, 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 the pups, essentially. And wow. they, yeah, they found changes in the sperm of several non-coding microRNAs as well as the peewee interacting microRNAs. So, uh, you, in the sperm of the, of the, um, pups that were under the stress. So sort of, uh, giving way to this, you know, I've seen sort of like, 
studies on this with like uh, the potato famine and how that affected the generations of genes yeah. afterwards. So it's it's interesting to see how the environment can cause like a sort of a genetic memory on the. Yep. Yeah. It's, yep. I totally agree. And the fact that they looked at sperm and RNA, I thought was interesting um, and saw changes there. So. Um, well, you know what? It's very like this in the autism field now. They know that they know the highest, uh, the you know, the biggest factor really is paternal age. Right, so the older you are when you reproduce, the more likely you're going to have uh, autism. And now, what they're trying to look for is in the sperm, right? So they're looking yeah. for the mutations that the environment can cause uh, on male sperm. And then, you know, as you get older, the sperm get, if you will, weaker a bit, so they're more susceptible. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, that whole thing is. Um it's it's really amazing what we're able to see uh, in terms of that it, the fact that these gen- it's sort of like all epigenetic, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it just gets imprinted and moved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, moving on, Doctor Atala, who uh, you had mentioned last time, I believe, uh, and uh, they we had uh, maybe brought this up. They had uh, these uh, lab grown vaginas. Uh, this is described in uh, the Lancet for this syndrome called Mayer. Rokitansky Kuster Hauser syndrome. Uh, right. Yeah, this rare uh, syndrome where pe- women are, I guess, born without uh, genitalia uh, down there. So uh, you can find that in the Lancet from Dr. Atala's lab. I had no idea that that even was around, that that existed, man. Yeah, me too. Uh, but you learn something every day. Um, there was, Jeez. yeah, there was this uh, cool, interesting study describing uh, this amoeba in the gut called Entamoeba histolytica, which uh, has this crazy process where they're able to nibble at the cells in the gut and just sort of bite away at the. They used to think they just like kill them, but um, it's this process called trogocytosis, meaning trogo, meaning to nibble. And uh, you can find that, that uh, yeah, it's in nature. It's a pretty interesting study uh, describing. Yeah, I love that we have amoeba right now nibbling on our body parts. <laughs> yeah. Don't even know what's going on. Yeah, just chilling, yeah. nibbling away. Yeah. Nibble, nibble, nibble. Yeah. So um, I think uh, uh, I can wrap it up there, except for maybe I just want to give a shout out to this uh, Fox N1 expression uh, via Tamoxifen. Can uh, uh, Injections can turn on the th- an old thymus in uh, mice. I saw that uh, study. Actually, after you'll just have to see that on the link. And real quick, a P loss study uh, showing uh, describing colony collapse disorder for bees um, was uh, possibly due to fungicides. Uh, uh, so uh, bees that were exposed to fungicides were three times more likely to die from a parasite. Um, and you can find that in PLOS, the Public Library of Science 1. Um, sort of reminds me of KRS-One whenever I just, <laughs> the, the rapper Knowledge Reigns I was Supreme. just listening to KRS-One <laughs> yeah. the other day, actually. So, uh, yeah, colony collapse disorder. It's sort of a big deal. And um, we don't really know what's killing off the bees, but we definitely need those bees. So I guess on that note, I'll wrap it up. What do you say? All right, let's, uh, let's, let's take it here to some of these uh, stem cell studies. Let's, where should we start? All right, so let's start with the stab situation. Oh, I don't know if you've been following it. Yeah, I know. So this is this is so funny. It's not funny at all, but it's funny as hell to me. Um, I'm where was I? I was sitting there. I'm going on. I was just looking like through the news uh, for the stem cells, 
and the staff stuff comes up and it's like daily gossip for you know you just like, always something there so they were having a live they were having a press conference so so the the first author dr obakata uh she was doing uh, giving her first you know the first time she was speaking and there was a press press conference and there were live blogs man i you know it was like you know like the amanda knox trial in italy the girl <laughs> that like was that, that that's what it felt like to like she walked into the room yeah. she has she's at the microphone you know like she's she's speaking now she's saying that you know she stands by it uh, she's starting to tear up a little bit oh my god she's crying and i'm like oh my wow. gosh like, come it's all, it's so all, bizarre all we need is nancy grace out there you know <laughs> <laughs> no but it's so sad i'm like I'm so sad so anyway she gave her she gave her spiel man she stands by it she said she's done it over 200 times um and she stands by it and and her lawyer spoke whatever i didn't really go through the whole line by line uh but it's i guess it just still is where it is then there was a recent um thing i was reading about it was in the, the Jap- japan times uh, and it's about Yosh- Yoshishiki Sasai, Yos, and and Doctor Sasai is a very well known yeah, developmental I mean, he, he, neurobiologist. He's, he's the reason why I believe the results in the first place. Um, uh, yeah, he yeah. has always a very good. good not, and I'm not saying this to suggest that no longer he does. I'm just saying that when when you see his name on a paper, you would read it a little bit more carefully, you know, because yeah. it, it, it meant it meant a lot to hold a lot of weight. And so he spoke out about it at a press conference, and he basically said that you should retract the paper due to the credibility issues until it's figured out, you know, see what happens. And he actually, Yosef, he says that the staff cells are still just a hypothesis. That's what he said. Why do they keep saying that? I think she said that too uh, in the press conference. That's a hypothesis. And uh, that's sort of, yeah, I didn't know that the paper was publishing a hypothesis. I thought it was an actual cell type. But um, okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand why that's supposed to make me feel better about <laughs> yeah. the situation. You know what I mean? It's like it's fine. It's just a hypothesis, and I'm like, oh, that's good. I have a million of those. Uh, do you want one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. So I, I don't know. I did. It's it's really strange, and I don't know where the hell it's going to go. But it's going, and it's it's got legs. Anyway, let's let's be done with staff. So I think the real big uh, front runner in the stem cell field uh, in the past couple of weeks. Is that there was a new report for SCNT somatic cell nuclear transfer? Um, we we've talked about it a bunch in the show. You know, it's a way to make pluripotent stem cells. These are embryonic stem cells. You know, the ones we use um, in the lab, and these are done uh, with the process where you take you know take an egg, woman's egg, and you take the nucleus out, you enucleate it, and then you take a somatic cell, a skin or something, and you take the genetic material and you put it into the egg, and you can create. And an embryo, and then in the you know obviously in the dish we use it, we have embryonic stem cell lines, and so Doctor, you say it better than me. Is it Metalipov, Joseph? Metalipov, yeah. Metalipov. Uh, when was this? Now a year ago? Yeah, I about think? a year Maybe ago. Maybe a little less. Yeah. Reported that he had uh, he was he did SCNT. They made lines, and there was a little bit of a controversy that came out. Um, you know, so some of the pictures again were a little shady or something. Anyway, this there, new there was controversy report, on that paper. I didn't I didn't realize that, but I, I just I think know there was man. You know what? I think it was because I think it was like one of the things was it was uh, the journal received it and like accepted it two days later or something real real weird like that. Yeah. And then there was a, there was a duplicated image in that paper too. Oh, I didn't realize that. I know that yeah, one there the, was a, one of the key talking points at least was the caffeine spike, and then the uh, use of very young uh, donated eggs was sort of the breakthrough that allowed them 
um, to clone the first human stem cell line without uh, really reprogramming, right? Yeah, and for and for everybody out there, if you've all probably heard, and people are not in the stem cell world, you've heard of Dolly the sheep. You know how they made the sheep back in '96. This is what they do. It's the same process. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. And so with that, it always. I should just say this is with um, Doctor Doctor Robert Lanza, who's at ACT, and there's a Korean scientist. You know, this is partially funded by the Korean government. Joseph, this is another time Koreans are, you know. Uh, with SCT, or at least in that world, because you remember Dr. Wang is Korean, I believe, right? Yeah, and uh, I, I've also seen a lot of cloning of dogs out there. It's like a customer service out there. But anyhow, that's another topic for another day. That's another topic. Yeah. So, um, so it's just like Dolly Sheep. So this always then brings up the debate: we can create humans, yeah, you know, yeah. with this process. And so the cloning problem, and there was, um, you can go. You, you you guys can go out there. There's a ton of there were a ton of articles and and you know opinion pieces that came out about uh, this study. And I, there was one I was reading in the Washington Post. Uh, let's see here, the author. It's by the editorial board. I don't know what that means. Uh, and it's it's in stem cell research, health benefits outweigh the risks of copying humans. This is the title. And. It sounds it sounds crazy, but it's 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 an accurate statement. I think that the potential is so amazing. We live it every day, Yosef and I, and we try to tell you guys about it. But um, you know, some of the most powerful techniques and the powerful tools might might could come off with a little bit of shady stuff. Like, oh yeah, you can you could create a human. You gotta hope that ninety nine point nine percent of people won't, right, Yosef? Yeah. It's always going to be there lingering, right? It's yeah, always going to be there lingering. There's that crazy group, the Raelians, the, the people who believe that aliens implanted DNA uh, onto the planet Earth, and they were trying to do this a while ago. I remember seeing interviews of some woman, and she was like, yeah, we have a lab off the coast of Italy in international wars, and we're going to clone the first you know, human, and this is part of their prophecy. So there's all sorts of wacky stuff that this could go down uh, into in terms of like cloning when you hear cloning and uh this we're not trying to clone a human we're just trying to make stem cell lines with leftover embryos from in fetal in vitro fertilization clinics um so i mean that's that's yeah uh, i mean yeah i mean and and with this with with this new technique though yosef the one thing is you need the eggs and that's always the thing right you need the eggs and so whenever you need that you're you're reliant on a source whereas you know the ips world we're not reliant on a source. i mean we are but it's much more readable i can get a skin sample obviously a lot easier than i can a woman's egg so it's a painful process and there's all this debate on whether we should imburse people for their donations of these eggs uh women for the donation of these eggs and uh then you get into like it's sort of like with like kidney uh depositories like should we pay people for their kidneys even though there's a back you know long lust of people waiting for kidneys uh what were the incentives for donating eggs and blah 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 so this could there's a lot of issues here so so what about this paper tell me about this paper um how is this no i mean it it's not it's just a confirmation of i think it's it was a brief report and i think it was just a you know it's another report they did it from an older patient. I think it was like a 75-year-old and a 35-year-old, and they did it. And I think it's and, and I think they do they did the caffeine thing, Joseph. But I think they did it longer. I think the first Metalopop did it for 30 minutes. Okay. And they do it for two hours. They do it for two hours. They do it a little bit different. But the bottom the bottom line is, it, I think you can do it. 
You know, okay. this is this isn't just a fluky thing. Uh, it's definitely it's definitely will work. Um, but again, you're going to need the eggs. So it, that was in cell stem cell. Check it out. Uh, it's important. It's an important branch of stem cell biology. So yeah, uh, it's nice to see that it, you can reproduce it. Uh, let's see. This one was in Nature Cell Biology, and so it's really you know stem cells increase in cancer patients. I don't know if you saw this possibly from drug resistance. So I, th- this is the hi- we talk about hypotheses. Here you go. I didn't know this was a this was some this was found. Yos, know, maybe you did. Drugs most commonly used to treat some cancers like breast, um, lung, pancreatic. They they become ineffective, uh, and they actually start to encourage drug resistance and tumor growth through the development of cancer stem cells. Did you know this? No, I, I never no. really. I, I think. Yeah. I, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so let's see. So this is a study from the University of California, San Diego. They found that cancer tumor cancer tumor cells develop properties very similar to stem cells. Mm. And those properties then enable them to develop drug resistance and survive throughout mm. the body. Um, so uh, basically, there's this whole field that they call cancer stem cells. And I know, man, it, 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 that's a little controversial term as well. Yeah, uh, we, what we, is we, the cancer stem cell? We, we've got a good episode with Dr. Morrison on that. Sean Morrison explains yep. that. Yeah. Uh, so this, this group, the senior author David uh, Sherish, um, he says that these patients relapse as cancer cells become drug resistant. So they looked at the cells both before and after the drug resistance developed, right, to see what changed. And they found that as the drug resistance happened, tumors, the tumor cells developed stem cell-like properties. Hmm. And that allowed them to propagate longer even in the presence of these treatments. Hmm. All right, And they found this as a cell surface marker. I think it's CD61 on the surface of these cells, which causes them to stay stem-like. You ever seen that marker, Yos? No, CD61? No. no, I thought... No, no. Um, so that's the one that makes, you know, they gives them these properties. And so they're now looking for these drugs to uh, uh, act at that uh, marker and see if they can slow it down. So that's interesting. I never knew it. I didn't knew that. I know. I didn't know that hypothesis existed either. Yeah. Cool. There was a study. Uh, these are cool, man. You know, these making organs. We talked about Dr. Atala and the designer. Uh, vaginas. Yeah. The uh, they have this. Let's see. There was this out of. This is in London. Uh, they made noses. Have you seen this? They can make no. a nose. All right. Yeah. It's so crazy. You guys got to Google this. This is also organs created from stem cells for transplantation. You Google like stem cells and nose, and they show you the they show you what it looks like. And it looks like a nose. It's so it's so cool. So this is Alexander Cephalin, uh, and he made a synthetic polymer nose. At his research facility in, in the Royal Free Hospital in London, uh, they're making noses, ears, and now they're making blood vessels, man. They're making like the, the um, like main arteries from the heart to, to repair. It's so wild. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, ma- it's hard to imagine where this is all, you know, going and how they make these stuff. I've even seen 3D printers with cells, you know, like... The, it's amazing where the technology is going with uh, it's wild yeah it's so crazy they, they mix like polymer and then they take stem cells from the fat okay and they mix it together um, and so they're doing these because they're a little bit more they're a little easier to make than big organs like that need to be you know vascularized heavily yeah. and things like this so they're starting small they made windpipes successfully noses ears they say the ear is very difficult because of all the contours uh-huh. it's uh, and I guess they're the kids that don't have ears Joseph like what wow. the hell yeah, <laughs> what well, is this a company or a? Um, this is a. Uh, no, he has. A, I'm sure he. I'm trying to see. He he's he's in the University of College London. Okay. But whether he's got, he's probably got some sort of spinoff or something. He's a doctor and he's doing it in the hospital. So that's really cool. Check it out. Go 
go go read about him. His name is Alexander Cephalion, I think, something like that, at University College London. Mm-hmm. Again, if you Google stem cells and nose, you'll probably find it. Let's see. This was in this was in Cell Reports. This was kind of cool. The conversion of a quiescent niche cell of quiescent quiescent niche cells to somatic stem cells causes ectopic niche formation in the Drosophila testes. So, you say niche or niche? Yeah, well, niche. <laughs> niche. So the niche is really like the environment that the cell or stem cell really kind of just marinates in, just sits there, and the niche is just giving it all stuff, keeping it in the state that it needs to be in. And the niche is extremely important, obviously, then to regulate stem cell uh, fate and division and so forth. So in this study, this is done in the Drosophila testes, um, they could, this, uh, the models, they, they, can, they, they could contain a very well-characterized niche. All right? so there's, these, there's, these signal, there's these cells in the niche called the hub cells, mm-hmm. and they promote, the, they promote the maintenance of the stem cells in the, uh, uh, where they lie. And so it's been thought that those hub cells are just differentiated cell type. So what they did was they, they, they genetically ablate the, some stem, stem cells, and mm-hmm. they see that the niche cells around them will, turn, will exit quiescence, delaminate, and then turn into the stem cells. Hmm. And then they'll, re- they'll start to reform the niche around the new cells. So what you, 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 like in the process, you create these niches all over the place. So like they delaminate, make more stem cells, make a new niche, and then that happens. So it's like multiplying the stem cell population with the niche. And they're saying that during an oncogenic mutations where this could happen, um, this could be a, a reason why you have this aberrant stem cell growth and you know, tumor formation and continued growth. Because the niche can recapitulate and turn into the stem cell. It's pretty cool. There you go. Going from Drosophila testes all the way to, uh, you know, I, uh, what, uh, how is this helpful in terms of uh, human biology? Well, I think in terms of, at least with the, the way they talk about it, in, in terms of uh, cancer biology, they say that they, this is kind of a model for how you can understand um, how oncogenic mutations in these cells mm-hmm. uh, could, could, could promote the stem cell population and increase it and thus like we just saw in that previous paper right help to not have drug be drugs so effective and such so i guess it's just more in the oncogenic process yeah yeah cancer stem um, cells man you're you're on it today cancer i know you see that i didn't even realize that do i what's next cancer stem cell no yeah. so i saw okay so then, no, the next study is, is cool nature is nature materials yeah i read a, a, a press release and it was called bulletproof nuclei question mark Stem cells exhibit un- unusual absorption absorption property. So I said, what the hell's bulletproof nuclei? So th- this was a study in embryonic stem cells. It was at University of Cambridge. Um, they say that stem cells, they dem- demonstrate a really bizarre property never seen before at a cellular level, and it's called oxeticity. Have you ever heard of this? Never. Never Me heard neither. that term. It's one which uh, they say has applications as wide-ranging as soundproofing, superabsorbent sponges, and bulletproof vests, this octicity or whatever. So, you know, most materials, when stretched, they contract. So if you pull on an elastic band, right, it gets thinner. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the opposite of true is if you squeeze a material, it'll expand. So if you squeeze a tennis ball, right, between both hands, the circumference around the ball gets much larger. Mm. So the material scientists are looking to see this octicity. Um... And in, in, in that, I hate saying that over and over, in oxeticity, the, uh, pro, it's, it's opposite. So if you squeeze it, it will contract. If you stretch it, it will expand. So that makes them very, very excellent shock absorbers or sponges. So that's really why they're trying to, to you know, find things with the, these properties because they can use them 
for things like bulletproof vests or super absorbent sponges. All right. Mm. So, so this has never been demonstrated in anything man-made. The, these, this group found that as a pluripotent cell transitions to a, to a differentiated you know, state, so it's in that in-between metaphase, um, the nucleus becomes auxetic. So it actually gets sponge-like and it can sop up cytoplasm. Hmm. So like it'll act, so only in that transition it gets like like polyramy like you know it's all like and it suck, can suck in new like stuff from the cytoplasm give and take like through this little spongy mechanism and then once it achieves the cell fate it doesn't it's not like that anymore. I mean people forget the nucleus is the largest organelle in the cell and it's sort of like this black box it's got all these sub organelles in it like the nucleoli and so much stuff goes on in the nucleus of the cell and. Uh, it's, it's a, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, this uh, is nuts. So anything so else? Expanding. Let's see. Quickly. Cell stem cell. There was a paper by Kevin Egan's group, Evangelos, because Ken is first author. He had another paper. We talked about it last time. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to I'm not going to go into this. I'm just going to let you know that it was published. It's, it's on looking at pathways that are disturbed in ALS, because I'll have Kevin talk to us about this. And uh, when he walks us through uh, on the next episode, but you can find it in cell stem cell if you want to check it out beforehand. And then another another uh, article in Cell Stem Cell that came out uh, looks at uh, regulation of reprogramming by by messenger RNA translational control. So I won't really go into the details. It's it's it's, it's a good paper. It talks about how the reprogramming process is regulated at the translational level. So how you know the message message to protein. A lot yeah. of, a lot of us focused on the transcriptional. Um, so this is a translational regulation. So that's in Cell Stem Cell. Check it out. Um, and I think with that, we should be done because we want to get Chris on and make sure we get through all our questions. Yeah, so why don't you bring him on? Okay, so today on the Stem Cell Podcast, our guest is Dr. Chris Smith from the critically acclaimed show and podcast, The Naked Scientists, which I've uh, been a fan of, Yosef. They have some awesome, awesome stuff. Uh, Chris received uh, an MD-PhD from the University of Cambridge. And then in 1999 started really the show and podcast, The Naked Scientist. And uh, for everyone who doesn't know it, it's a one-hour audience interactive science radio talk show. It broadcasts live by the BBC and internationally as a podcast. Um, and each episode of the program is about one hour long, and they include a digest of some topical science. Uh, they get audience questions because it is a live show which on the air, which is really cool. And they have interviews with guest scientists. So they've won uh, a multiple of awards, eight national and international awards for science communication since 2006. It's one of the most downloaded science podcasts, but there was, I think it was by 2011, an estimated 17 million episode downloads. It's crazy. Uh, in addition to this, Chris appears on a wealth of other shows that I'm sure he'll talk to us about. Uh, he founded and presented the, the first 100 episodes of the Nature podcast for the journal Nature. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, offline, and um, and that show is the first example of an international science journal producing an audio program to really supplement its printing content. Chris also published four popular science books, uh, and and, I'm, and there's a whole host of other things. But with that, let me let me just say it's my great pleasure to introduce the fully naked Dr. <laughs> Chris Smith. Welcome to the show. Hello, Chris. Hello, Yosef. This is I'm just it's it's so impressive when you look at at the at the biography, Chris, and and and, and everything that you guys have done with this naked scientist. So. Please, why don't you start giving giving the audience your science your scientific background in context of science? You're a scientist, and and then really, what 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 spurred you to to make this show and take it to where it is? 
Well, thanks, first of all, both of you for asking me on, because it's lovely to have the opportunity to talk to some fellow podcast professionals and uh, also to some fellow scientists. I'm based at Cambridge University. I've got a bit of a cold this week, so forgive my rather husky voice. Um, the, the way this all got started, I was a medical student at Cambridge University in the mid to late 90s. And I was a rather over-keen medical student because I decided that medical training wasn't long enough and I'd shove a PhD <laughs> in the middle of my medical degree. And I then decided that I was sufficiently underemployed during my PhD that I needed to start a radio show as well. And this just sort of started by accident because the University of Cambridge began doing something that's now become known as the Cambridge Science Festival. And this was where the university would throw open its doors every year at around Easter time, to the general public and just invite thousands of people to come in and meet students, meet researchers, and they would lay on demonstrations and talks and lectures to showcase what the university was doing for the general public. And I got involved in this, and the first year we were measuring nerve conduction velocities. I built this nerve stimulator so you could measure how fast information was going up and down your arms and legs. And the next year they said, would I come and do this again? And I thought, well, I don't really want to do the same thing again. It would be fun to do something different. And it was the GM food scandal uh, in Europe at that time. And I thought, why don't we just um, make some DNA for people? So I had this protocol, which we'd cooked up, made the lab stink, actually, <laughs> uh, for getting DNA out of, out of anything you, you wanted to within reason, using stuff you find in your kitchen and bathroom. Hmm. And this got me invited onto this local radio station. And I turned up, I just raked a couple of my friends out of the lab to come along and, and talk science for what was ostensibly supposed to be, you know, 10, 15 minutes about the science festival and what we've been doing. And it ended up turning into two hours and we, we shoved in a load of music with it and we were taking questions from the audience. And the people at the radio station said, oh, this is quite good, you should come again. So I said, oh, this was fun. I'll, I'd love to come again. A couple of weeks later, we rocked up again. Same story. And this went on for six to eight months or so. And, and I began to think, well, you know, radio is a pretty powerful medium and there's not much good quality science on the radio. Wouldn't it be nice to start a proper science show, especially on a commercial music radio station? That would be so different that it would probably make people listen. So I approached the management of the radio station and said, right, how much to buy a year's airtime off of you? I want to set up my own show. And, uh, and they sort of laughed a bit. And, and when they'd picked themselves up off the floor, they came up with some sort of number. And so then I had a target. So I just went round and I raised all this money. I went to various grant awarding bodies and that kind of thing. And I walked in there with a check and I gave them the check. I said, there you go. We'll start on Monday. <laughs> and the, and the, this time I was the one who was standing there while they kind of gaped. And um, they gave us the airtime because we'd, we'd made them sign on the dotted line. And that was the, the year 2000. So in February, mid-February 2000, we, for the new millennium, we launched what was first called Science World. And we did that for a year. And then we stopped for a bit because we had to sit our medical finals and also write a PhD thesis, you know, one of those small things you have to do at certain points. Just point a little thing, yeah, just a little yeah. thing. <laughs> and, um, and so I just stopped for a little while and then came back after I'd finished my medical finals and I was now doctor and, and I got my PhD, so I was doctor, doctor. And we came back as, as the naked scientists. And uh, over the summer holidays before I, I started my first medical job, my what, what you call in America an internship, uh, I 
bought myself a very big book in coding websites and how you write JavaScript and PHP and all that kind of stuff. And I taught myself uh, with a big jar of coffee. And I designed the website and then got all of the audio from the previous series, shoved it on the website. And um, then we launched the radio show as a naked scientist. It was an hour long. We were playing a bit of music, talking a bit, a bit more music, a bit more talk interview a guest or two, and so on. You get the picture. Mm. And every time we did a show, we would put that show onto the web and then make it available for, for download and subscription and stream. And so we, we in 2001, were, were one of the world's first science podcasts, one of the world's first podcasts, actually. And, and it grew from there. And so we went from literally reaching a few thousand people live on the radio on a Sunday night to suddenly having this international audience. And we were getting, you know, 10,000-plus people would be listening to this thing over the internet. And um, and it was at that stage that the BBC got in touch and said, "Hey, we've been listening to this. Do you want to move it over to the BBC?" And that was that was about two thousand and two, two thousand and three, and and then we just began to scale it up after that. And, and since then, I've I've finished my medical training and I'm I'm a consultant virologist at Cambridge University these days. Uh, but I I do sort of half the week doing clinical work, and the other half the week I do this kind of thing. Wow. Wow. And, you know, the, the podcast medium for scientists, I feel like, is especially, you know, as opposed to watching a Nova special on TV, this is something you could actually do in the lab while you're, I don't know, pipetting, uh, you know, a hundred Eppendorf tubes. It's something that it's sort of, you could learn in the background while you're doing semi-mundane work. So, I, you know, it's great that you were able to capitalize early on the, the science podcasting uh, niche. So or niche, if it you know how they say it in England. So um, I'm I'm really uh, really excited that you guys have grown so much. Uh, and how long has it been since uh, the Naked Podcast has been on iTunes? Well, iTunes began to uh, accession podcasts in June 2005, mm. and I know the date very well because we'd obviously been been doing this sort of thing with subscribable audio for a number of years by then. And I heard this rumor that iTunes were going to do this, and I thought, yeah, a music store, because I'd heard of that, and I thought, well, that's quite big, you know, it's quite important, got got a lot of got, got a lot of attention. And then they announced they were going to to launch this thing, and this web page was published saying if you wanted to submit your podcast to iTunes, then if you put these tags into your RSS feed, then they could go, then it would be readable by iTunes. And so I, I took the morning off work, and I sat on my living room floor with this web page I'd downloaded a copy of. And I looked at these tag things and I thought, oh, God, how do I do this? Anyway, I wrote the RSS feeds and modified them to incorporate these tags because it was, it was a lot more difficult in those days because there, weren't, there were no sort of tools online where people facilitated doing this thing. You had to do all the coding yourself. And so I wrote these things and then I submitted them into the music store. And unlike these days where the throughput tends to be very, very quick, you had to sweat for a long time before they got back to you. And I thought, God, I hope they accept this. Anyway, they did. And um, the next thing I know, uh, the, the, I've got the university, because I had this server hiding in one corner of Cambridge University with all our audio on it. Next thing I know, I've got the university on the phone to me wanting to know whether we'd been hacked because they said the site traffic coming off of this server is accounting for 99% of the university's outgoing wow. web traffic. And oh what is going on? And I said, God, I don't know. And I had a look at this server, and I thought it had been hacked because there were you know, thousands and thousands of programs were going off. And I got onto iTunes, and um, 
there was one music store for the entire world at that time. There was no sort of country-specific music store. There was just one iTunes music store. And there was one podcast section. And uh, they hadn't sort of categorised everything by that stage because it was early days. They didn't have very much content. And so there was a sort of top 20, and we were in it. And that's the whole world, you know. And um, <laughs> we just got thousands and thousands of subscribers. And it was, it was a fantastic time. It was an amazing journey to sort of see your stuff sitting there alongside these amazing sort of celebrities and all that kind of thing. And it was science. And I was just proud of the fact that, you know, if we achieved nothing else for a while, we were sort of top of the charts in the entire world. And we were doing it with a science program. We didn't have to resort to lame comedy. We didn't have to resort to having a picture of Cameron Diaz on our podcast. You know, yeah, <laughs> we, just, yeah, yeah. we just called it yeah. a sexy name instead, it Naked is. Scientist. And I'm sure that it was the science that made people click on it. Nothing else. I'm sure it was nothing to do with the fact that people were convinced they were going to get naked people reading science. <laughs> no, absolutely or not. I'm sure that had nothing to do absolutely with it. Absolutely not. Um, and you- you know, that's that's just the most amazing part because I think part of the problem here, at least, you know, I, I know in this country, is that just the younger generation and the younger they're just not as interested in science. It's just not something that's that's very prominent. You know, you hear about it all the time with science education needs an overhaul where it's just not where it was. It's not it's considered to be boring. I think a lot of times when people listen to us or they hear us talk, they're surprised that we're actually scientists and um, you probably get that yourself, just because scientists come with this stereotype of being very nerdy and dorky which we might all be but that carry it doesn't mean that we can't converse can't be funny and it can't be interesting and that's something that everybody should know and, and you must know this because you've you've seen it i mean how do you feel your your podcast your your shows and, and the other podcasts out there are are helping science i mean you must truly feel that this is a beneficial thing for everybody out there to know about what's going on in the scientific world do you know it's hugely gratifying for me because I, I don't do this to get rich. If I was doing this to get rich, I should have given up a long, long, long time ago because this is not a business you go into to make an absolute fortune because it's not going to happen, at least not for a long time in my experience. But it is something that can give you enormous satisfaction because when you see people getting this and they see, you see them downloading it, not just once, but you see them coming back again and again to download the programs you're making and you see that some of those people, because they write to you, are young children or early career scientists, or as one person in Australia put it in an email to me, I always listen to your program while I'm dissecting the, the prostate glands out of Drosophila in my laboratory because <laughs> it makes the tedium more tolerable. Uh, you just get a little kind of glow and a warm feeling inside because you think you know, you're touching someone somewhere. There are people who, who really appreciate what you do, and they come back time and time again, and they enjoy and consume the program and then they become your ambassadors and they become an ambassador for science. And we don't just dwell on, on what we're doing on our own themes and topics. We invite other people to come and, and use the Naked Scientists as a platform because um, it, it, it dawned on me very early on that there's enormous m- sort of motivation to do public understanding of science. But one of the really big bottlenecks or one of the big problems is actually getting to an audience um we have worked very hard for a very long time to win a big audience so now it's time to share that audience and so we invite other scientists to come on the program and talk to our audience 
And in the process, we learn from them, they learn from us, and the audience learn from all of us. And we learn from them because they send in really good questions, which we can then put to this audience. Mm. Uh, sorry, put to our guests. So the whole thing works very, very well. And, and it's been enormously gratifying for me, not just because we won awards, which is good to have recognition for it, but, but we've obviously won people's hearts as well and their minds. And I think that's really, really good for us to, to be able to say that we, you know, we went out and did something and we, and we succeeded so, um, purely because we wanted to. So you, you, at one point you were doing both the Nature podcast as well as the Naked Scientist? Oh, yeah. Um, in 2005, I went up to nature and I said, um, there's this thing called podcasting and it's pretty important. And you could take your weekly content and you could produce a program which uh, would be a sort of audio supplement to what you're printing. And you could get the scientists talking about the work they're doing in their own words. And in this way, people could have from the horse's mouth broadcasting, if you like. And no one's doing that. You would be the first journal to do that. And they thought that was a good idea. And so we launched the Nature podcast in, in the autumn of 2005. And it did very well. And it was good for me because, obviously, I, I had to learn a huge amount of science very quickly because... Initially, I knew a lot of medicine and I knew a lot of biology, but I knew about as much as I could write on the back of a postage stamp about quantum mechanics. Now I write, I know about as much as I could write on the back of my mobile phone about quantum <laughs> mechanics, but it's still probably an order of magnitude more. And uh, it meant that I, I learned a, a lot about who the movers and shakers are. I learned how to do good interviews because it's very easy to do bad interviews. It's very easy to interview people for a really long time and um, you end up with a massive long thing and it's impossible to edit. Mm. And I learned very quickly how to drill down to the heart of a story or a subject, get what the key fact was, and then get that person to, to, to um, explore that more in a way that you wouldn't get from reading the paper or that you wouldn't get from reading the newspaper. And that was a, a huge learning curve for me. It was, it was instrumental in helping me to become a much better at doing that kind of thing. Great. I mean, for us, we've got about 16 episodes under our belt. Uh, so we just started in October and uh, we're, we're slowly, we're kind of learning as we go along. So if you have any advice uh, you'd like to impart on us, we're, we're more than welcome to take it. Because how many episodes are you at with the Naked Scientists? I was looking at this the other day because we were trying to tot up how, how much content we've got. And, you know, I was talking to the guys who host us. Um, and they said, uh, you've got more files than anybody else that we host, and we host 75% of the world's podcasts. Oh, uh, and, and so we, we were totting it up, and I think we're probably, because um, we've got 10 years' worth of stuff, and we're pumping out you know, a few programs a week. There, there must be 600 hours plus oh, of, of programming uh, wow. on, on the servers now. And the amazing thing is that people are still consuming stuff we did 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And because it's all time stamped and date stamped, right, right. So you're not going to get misled by it. it. It's nonetheless got an evergreen quality in the sense that people go back and they sort of can reminisce and see how some stories have evolved and how some some things have have translated from where they were then to where they are now by doing that sort of comparison. But also, it it, it speaks to me and says to me, what we have been doing is clearly entertaining. And even though it might be a bit dated, some of the stuff from 10 years ago now is 10 years old, nonetheless, the programs are still in and of themselves entertaining and therefore still worth listening to because there's a story 
to, to be told there, and it's fun to listen to. Yeah, because I was familiar with your work on nature, but um, The Naked Scientist is new to me, and I, I download a bunch of episodes. I particularly love the one on nanoparticles uh, and uh, the, the the breadth of the, you know, we sort of do something like that with our science roundup where we try to cover non-stem cell-related news for a little bit, but you guys really get into depth with these, you know, different topics, and I was pretty impressed by the breadth and depth of the actual podcast well of course what we're trying to do is slightly different than your mission your mission is to try to uh, take something which is a black box to many people stem cell biology is very complicated to many and it's it's something many people wouldn't dare to try and cover because there's complexity there and, and i think you're trying to take it and take it to a certain audience you're trying to provide something for scientists but also that's accessible to a broad audience we're taking a step back from that and saying, well, rather than just focus on one thing, we've got to please everybody because also the, the scientists we're representing are from the full scientific arena, not just one particular discipline. And so if we were to just make a whole program focused on one topic, then if people love that topic, that would be great and that audience would obviously be delighted. But there will equally be listeners who would say, well, I'm not in the faintest, slightest bit interested in how to program a computer. So a whole episode on computer coding and programming leaves me cold and then they switch off and we don't want that so by offering a range of different topics and concepts and news then there's something for everybody mm. and it means that the biologists get fed a bit of physics that maybe they they wouldn't necessarily consume otherwise and mm. vice versa it's a bit like um you know you you sneak the greens in on the side of the plate and the kids eat them because they quite <laughs> like the sausage that goes with mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah that's uh, true I've, qu- I've i've done that i've done the baby sneak i've done the baby greens <laughs> yeah, sneak. So, so quantum physics are the brussels sprouts of uh <laughs> science i guess i think so <laughs> Well, so no, so so we are stem cell podcast, and we are stem cell scientists, and that is the focus. And so, tell me, Chris, in your in your experience and breadth of science, tell us your experience with stem cells. What, what fascinates you about them? What 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 you're you know what you're keen on? What you like? What you hear? To tell us a little bit about stem cells in your world, and or if you have uh, something in particular you want to talk about. But I'm curious to know what your take on the general field of stem cell biology is. Well, I was really lucky actually to interview Rudolf Janisch when he published his paper in Nature describing, um, along with Roger Peterson, who also joined us in the studio as a sort of double header, Mm. um, the uh, elaboration of the first iPS cells. Mm. And it meant that suddenly a sort of door opened. And and when I said to them, so this is all very well, you can take a skin cell and turn it back into a stem cell, but why is this important? And when they answered, it suddenly dawned on me why this was important. Because the point that you could take a cell from someone who had disease X... And you could produce stem cells and then any tissue in the body that that person's body is made from, from that stem cell, and therefore potentially model their own personal disease rather than trying to use some proxy model or some animal. I suddenly realized the sheer power of this. And not just from a from a disease modeling point of view, but then a regenerative point of view. Because obviously, if you can define what the error is, you can fix the error, and then you have a capacity also to generate new cells bespoke for that person, which are not going to have immunological consequences, and which could potentially restore sight to a blind person, cardiomyocytes to a person who's had a heart attack, or brain cells to someone who's got Parkinson's disease, and restore movement. And that's why I really got into this because I suddenly thought, wow, this is a fantastic area. And for a long time, we'd been obsessed with embryonic stem cells and 
there were, the debates were going round and round in ethical circles and it didn't look like anyone was going anywhere fast anytime soon. And suddenly the whole thing just exploded and it was, it was galvanizing. Mm. I, I, you know, we talk about it all the time. We were there, we were at, I mean, I was there, you know, and I know, I know you remember when the paper came out, I was at the International Society for Stem Cell Research when Shinya Yamanaka got up in front of all of the audience and basically said that he was able to turn a skin cell into a human embryonic stem cell. Uh, and, you know, and, and the way he did it was by putting four genes into those cells that are normally expressed in the embryonic stem cell. And, of course, everyone's like, oh, yeah, come on. That's obvious, you know, yeah. But really, when, when you took a step back and you thought about what that actually means, uh, it's, it's changed the whole, it's changed everything. It's a game changer, and uh, it's really, really accelerated not only the findings, but also the excitement in the field of what you can do. For sure. I think that's undoubtedly true. And the other thing that it's done is to do away with this whole moral dilemma business because that was holding things up no end. I mean, George Bush, love him or loathe him, we love him over here in Britain because he did for our stem cell industry what no one else could have ever done because <laughs> by, by paralyzing the field in America for so long, it gave our scientists the biggest advantage we could possibly have ever asked for. Um, but, I mean, joking aside, um, it, it is a very important area and it's definitely the future and it's really nice to, to be talking to two guys who, who realize that and work on this stuff because, yeah. you know, this, this is where it's all going. This is how we're going to put the body right. We're accustomed to giving people little pills and potions and tablets and the occasional bout of surgery to put things right. But, you know, in the long run, cells are what our bodies are made of. Cells are what go wrong when our bodies get diseases and cells are what you're going to have to give people back to put those diseases right. Yeah, you know, um, I often say that George Bush, even though I disagree with him in virtually everything, uh, he kind of made uh, people like Chris and I a little more valuable on the market by restricting the research. The people who were actually able to work with human ES cells during that time period, during his presidency, were sort of grandfather clawsed in while the rest of the world was catching up to uh, science that had been produced in large part in the States. But, uh, you know, obviously other um, people were able to capitalize on the research, especially in China. I mean, in uh, Japan with Shinya Yamanaka's work and uh, Korea with what was apparently the cloning of uh, the first human line, but turned out to be the first parthenogenic line and cloning of the first dog. So, I mean, it, it, the world is caught up, and now I guess the field has moved on towards reprogramming. But, um, yeah, it's it's interesting how the whole drama played out over the last 10 years uh, with the whole field in general. So I don't know if you've covered that on the, on the Naked Scientist, but um, I'm interested in your take on the whole thing. Well, I think one of the really big papers of last year was the science paper from the guys in China showing we're going to screen 100,000 plus molecules until we find a combination which can do with four chemicals what previously people have needed to do with four genes in usually viruses. And, you know, that the whole idea of you can make iPS cells using uh, factors that you put into cells just by bathing cells in chemicals. And, and I thought that was actually really big business. And, uh, and I put that as my, my pick of the year because when I finish some of the year, years of broadcasting on some of the radio stations were on people say well what was your big your big paper of the year and, and i actually did select that um that paper um on that basis because i said you know this is really important because now instead of shoving viruses into cells and doing 
potentially harm to them that we don't know is happening. If you can just use other chemical messages instead, it's a much softer kind of treatment. It's much more likely to be successful and, and not do unforeseen damage to the cells. Yes, I mean, speaking of which, what are your thoughts on the whole stem cell, uh, this so-called oh, yeah. acid bath uh, treatment to make uh, stem cells? It seems as though uh, we have another controversy in the making. I don't know if you've been following it, but um, do you have any thoughts on uh, the actual uh, paper and what's going on with uh, nature's handling of this uh, controversy, if you will? Well, when it came out, of of course, we were all very excited and we thought, wow, this is, this is fascinating. And I, I was at a dinner in the Queen's College in Cambridge, where I'm a fellow, and I was talking to a girl who's a physiologist, she's a cardiac physiologist, and I said, why do you think, you know, if this were true, and that acid environments can provoke cells into this primitive state where they can then rederive other cell types and so on, why would you think that would be physiologically useful? And, and we sort of put our heads together and we were thinking, well, you know, in ischemic tissue, you can end up with a very acidic environment, very low pH owing to buildup of CO2, lactate, and so on. So we were speculating, well, I wonder if um, actually this mechanism exists because of, uh, it, it means that cells are forced into a regenerative state because tissue has been insulted so severely that it got that acid, that acidic. Mm. So it sort of fitted together. It seemed like quite a, a good story. And, uh, you know, it seemed a relatively good argument that. And now we've got this controversy that people can't repeat the experiments and you think, oh, you know, it's, it's dangerous, isn't it? Because people are in such a hurry to publish. I think now there's such enormous pressure to publish that where in the previous era, people would have sat on a result like that for a decade, checking it, making sure it was right, doing it again and again and again. Um, nowadays, I think there's enormous pressure on scientists to publish because otherwise they're going to lose their job. And this certainly exists in some institutions. If you haven't got X publications and X grants in, you're out. Um, and I think this is dangerous for science. And uh, sometimes it's not the fault of the scientists that, that the experiments go wrong and they get the wrong results and that we publish the wrong things. It's the fault of the system, I think, making them hurry too much. Mm. I agree with that. And, you know, there, and nowadays, Chris, you, you know this, the error that, that where, where we live with social media and these websites that are these, these post post-publication review sites where people will go on and talk about your work, talk about figure by figure by figure and look at detail, especially when it's such a high-profile finding. I mean, that was, a, that was another tremendous, could-be-game-changing finding. Uh, and, and people are going to find it. People are going to scrutinize it, and they're going to... Scientists inherently don't believe things off the bat, so you're already starting, you know, holding the ball there. You're already up a hill. So I think nowadays, you're right, that rush to put out, and when it gets to the review process, if it does, and it comes out, they're going to find the flaw. People are not going to be able to repeat it, and it will be exposed. I just... You know, uh, qu you know, quickly before we just because uh, we're running out of time here, I I've just been frustrated with the whole uh, nature's handling of this. You know, you really haven't heard anything from them. Um, there was a recent report by a group that claimed that they've repeated. They didn't repeat the finding, but they, in fact they saw some positive results. So some of the genes turned on, if you will, uh, and Nature put out a statement saying that someone else was able to repeat the study, which is just is not true. It's not a good conclusion, and I think they're feeding upon this and. It's just not – stem cells are – the last thing stem cells need to be – I said this last time I said it to Yosef – is on CNN.com on the first page about how we have another controversy in the stem cell field. And I think it applies to all fields, but in particular something that has already tarnished, if you will, in many people's view. Um, I think this is, this is the last thing that we need. Yes. I mean, no one needs a bad image, do they? And <laughs> stem cells is, is certainly a, 
a controversial area. It's already got a checkered past owing to work that went on in Korea, some of which was unethical, some of which was made up, it turned out. Um, some of it wasn't, though, and some of it has enormously benefited other people who have received treatments and, and now have things going for them that otherwise they wouldn't have had those benefits. So, you know, we, we don't need a scandal. What I would say is that I, you know, I'm a, a really strong proponent of a good look at the scientific system, and I'm very worried that uh, the way we're going with science is that we're promoting short-termism, we're promoting cherry-picking, and we're deselecting against the kind of environment that, that led us to the generation of Nobel Prize winners that we're celebrating today. Mm -hmm. And if you read John Salston, the guy who got the Nobel Prize for his role in the Human Genome Project, if you read his book, which he wrote with Georgina Ferry a few years ago, about, about a decade ago, it's called The Common Thread, and it tells his story of how he decided to pursue initially interest in how the worm develops and tracing the lineages of all of the cells in C. elegans and then ultimately culminating in his driving of the, the Human Genome Project funded by the Wellcome Trust. He actually says, you know, he's working in the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge and he said, you know, I, my boss came up to me and said, John, we've been working on this uh, worm study for some 10 years or so now. Do, do you think we should now think about writing a paper? <laughs> Can you see... <laughs> <laughs> that happening today no but that very opportunity to think laterally to think deeply and to think and behave and perform carefully led to a very thorough analysis very thorough piece of work a very thorough man and ultimately a nobel prize and i'm concerned that we're in too much of a rush these days to compete with each other and compete with everybody else and, and mistakes will get made but also people will will overlook important things because they're in such a hurry to publish the next big thing so what do you think the answer is then um, I think that we need to fund scientists better and I think we need to stop all this stupid short-term funding, mm. give good people solid money for a solid block of time yeah. and let them have time to think and yeah. develop. So and true. we also need to look after our young people better because it, you know, the, 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 the gulf that exists between a person who finishes their PhD, certainly in Europe this is true, you finish your PhD and then getting into a position where you can get grants and get an autonomous group going and get science coming out so that you're marketable, there's a huge gulf there. And it deters so many people that they think, you know what, I can't be, I can't be bothered with that because mm. I'm just going to be continuously stressed. Yeah. And it really strongly deselects women. Because if, if you're a woman, you're faced with a choice of, do I want to have a child or yeah. do I want to have a paper? Yeah. And I know so many scientists who I've worked with over the years who are female who either now are not scientists, but they are mothers, or they are scientists and successful, but they've had to forego children or make sort of sacrifices. And I think the system needs to improve to sort that out. And if, if we improve the lot of, 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 of women, we'll improve the lot for, for men too. It'll get better for all of us because we'll, we'll all benefit from actually improving the system. Yeah, I, I so agree. All right, I mean, Joseph, I always, you have to let smart people be smart, right? You have <laughs> to let people with good ideas execute their ideas. If you don't, and you just, you just relegate them to an office of writing 50% of their day, it's not beneficial for anybody. It's just not. And I, 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 I totally agree with you, Chris. There just needs to be a, you know, we... We had a we interviewed a, a a friend of ours who was a stem cell scientist on the last episode, and he is now running for Congress. He actually left all science to run uh, for Congress, so he can go in there and and have a voice for you know for for science, I mean for everyone, but for scientists in particular, um, because it's just so it's just so lost. It's just it's just it's not getting any better anytime soon. So. 
So uh, in trying to wrap this up, uh, you've been doing uh, the Naked Podcast. Actually, where did that name Naked Podcast come from? How did you come up with that? <laughs> well, the Naked Scientist was dreamed up over the washing up, rather unromantically and unsexily. Uh, I was in the middle of writing my thesis, and um, I had and still do get terrible avoidance behavior. And when you've got something big and important to do, like a grant application or a thesis to write, every mundane job that you've been putting off for the last decade or two suddenly assumes enormous priority. You know this as well mm. as I do, I'm sure. And the washing up, you know, something I professionally ignore most of the time, <laughs> suddenly became overly attractive. And I was fiddling around with the washing up and I was thinking, well, when we start this new radio show, what should we call it? And I thought, science has an image problem and, it, you know, sex always sells. So if we sort of put the two together and we get naked scientists, you know, it, it, it makes people laugh and then think rather like Mark Abraham's Ig Nobel Prizes. Yes. yes. And, and I think, you know, th this, this may just pull people in. That and, is brilliant. Um, and it did. And uh, when we launched it, um, in fact, for the first... Um, I don't know, for the first six months or so when, when we launched the website, about 80% of the referrals off Google were just for the keyword naked. <laughs> so it's like not the kind of naked they're expecting, but yeah. luckily I'm pleased to report that has, that has changed no, that, now. That, that is come that's for the science that these is, days, but a few still turn up for that, naked. That's brilliant marketing. We should just change the name here to, I don't know, the Sexy Stem Cell Podcast because that is, that's amazing. So, um, and finally, uh, in your years in doing the podcast, what's the funniest thing that's happened on there? with you yeah because you have a live show right chris oh yes um, so, we, so you, you know, must pretty have much some... all of what we do is live yeah so what, what is one of the funniest things that's happened on a live show someone that's called in or someone that said something i mean there must have been a ton of them the funny things oh, we, that we've done loads of stuff i mean we we made a chocolate teapot to prove that one wasn't useless because everyone says as useless as a chocolate teapot and we couldn't find any evidence that chocolate teapots were useless so we made one <laughs> and and it worked and then the buggers made me drink the tea we made in it on air on national radio and unfortunately the lid had melted into the teapot because the lid wasn't made of the same thickness of chocolate and steam the latent heat of condensation of steam of course imparts enormous energy and then the lid melted in so i ended up with sort of mocha tea um but it wasn't that disagreeable actually we did that and, and then we did um how fat would you have to be to stop a bullet with your beer gut oh yes um, i, I listened to, to that 75 one. centimeters fat and um and the, the other fun one was um Someone, someone phoned in, and, and I, it was around the time of the credit crunch. And uh, so we speculated that this person was trying to capitalize on their internal assets. But someone phoned in and said, how many organs could I donate and still remain alive? <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> uh, did you have an answer ready or no? Did you come up with a we conclusion? Thought about it. I mean, uh, it varies according to who you ask. But, I mean, it's at least eight. And wow. if you ask a histopathologist, then they come up with a load more. And I've just done a story for uh, Radio National in Australia before I came to talk to you because we have a, a live um, show in Australia as well, which we do once a week. And um, and I was just presenting the paper in The Lancet that's about to come out. And a group of researchers uh, at um, Wake Forest and also in Mexico have grown in vitro vaginas for four yes. people with congenital vaginal a aplasia. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a design of vagina grown in vitro. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, it's, it's a you know, great, great way of restoring, um, I think, normality to some people who would otherwise probably have a very emotionally trying time. Well, this is Yosef's and I's secret to everyone. We're only in the business of stem cells to grow vaginas in a dish. That's really what we're trying to do all the time. So uh, I think that was probably Anthony Atala maybe down at Wake Forest. I know they have an incredible regenerative medicine program down there. They're have growing you, tried also. The, you, could, you could try getting a girlfriend, Chris. I mean, that, that <laughs> yeah. might be. That's one alternative. I, I, used, 
That's a, that is another alternative. But I, I, I maybe can engineer different types all the time or something like that. Anyway, maybe a different topic for a different time. Well, thank so, you. Um, Thanks yeah, for joining yeah. us. Uh, that was really informative, and um, we 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 we're sure you'll do fine in the future. I mean, you've already uh, built quite an empire there, and uh, we hope. I don't know. Do you see anything evolving in terms of the podcast in the future? Like maybe video feeds or something else different, or do you see it staying sort of static in the in the future um, podcasting world? Is is this a static medium? Well, I'll give you a little exclusive just for you, okay? Because okay. no one knows about this yet. This is a, this is a first for you. Um, two days ago, uh, I was in Manchester, in Britain, and I was in the offices of a very powerful radio network, and so we've just done a, a deal with them, and we're going to create a new radio show for them, which we're going to make, and uh, it's going to be a spin-off of what we do already, and it's also going to be podcasted, and it's going to go all around the world. So uh, pretty soon uh, that's going to go live on the 3rd of May and it's probably going to be called uh, Name of the Radio Station followed by Science, predictably enough. So I can't tell you the name yet, but uh, it's, it's coming. Okay. And uh, so we're, we're evolving our brand to work with other bigger and bigger players to just carry the scientific message as far as possible. I like radio because it's very cost effective. And yeah. if you start going down the video and the, and the film route, yeah. The number of people behind the camera to the number of people in front of it, the ratio in radio is about two to one. In TV, it's about a, uh, you know, 20 to one. So it's, it's many, many times more expensive, and it's much, much slower to react. And radio is very quick, very, very t- fast turnaround, well, well, very reactive, and a very powerful medium. Well, I haven't seen a picture of you, but I definitely think you have a voice made for radio. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, thanks again for yeah. joining us on the Stem Cell Podcast and uh, sharing that breaking news uh, with our yeah, audience. Yeah, we, <laughs> we had a Stem Cell Podcast exclusive before any, everybody yeah. else with the yeah. Naked Scientist. Everybody out there listening, you can go to uh, Naked scientist.com you can google naked scientist you can google chris smith you can you'll find them their their brand is there their naked man is there and uh thank you chris for everything you do for science because at heart we're all scientists at least the three of us here and we love it and anything we can do to further its mission and further the message um you know we love it so we appreciate all you do and maybe you'll find yosef and i one day a guest on your podcast or one of them uh, <laughs> to your guys so that would we'll, be lovely uh, so thank you so much again, and have a wonderful uh, evening, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk soon. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to be asked, and good luck, and keep up the great work. Right. Thanks so much, Chris. Take care. <laughs>